Okay, we're into Esther, chapters 8 and 10, ending our study here, a a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, We are in the same day, on that day, the same day here, what day is that? The day that Haman was hung on the 75-foot spike that he had, he was hanging up there, okay? The tables had been turned. On that very day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther his house, the enemy of the Jews. And we have to look at, as we're going through here, Haman was an enemy of the Jews. This is that spiritual battle that's been going on. This is the battle that's been going on since from Exodus. Um, And when I read that, I thought, I betcha she started redecorating right away, don't you think? <laughs> Take a lot of that stuff out of there and bring a lot of really good stuff, glorifying to God into that, into that house. And, um, but it's just, is a, she's getting his possessions and his, um, his wealth, basically. Um, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told him that he was her cousin. This is my cousin Mordecai. Oh my gosh, ding, ding, ding. He didn't even realize that that was going on. So he had taken his ring off of Haman before they sent him up to the gallows there. And he took off his ring and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. Huge change of events for Esther and Mordecai to have that happen. We read that and realize this. The king wasn't even disturbed that Esther was Jewish. The king was not perplexed. For five years she kept that hidden. So you wonder how it would have played out if she had not been a closet Jew and told him from the very beginning who Mordecai was, because it's an odd transition between chapter 2 and 3. Chapter 2 ends with um, Mordecai telling the, the, reporting to the, the king through the queen that these two guys were going to, planning to assassinate him, and they checked it out, and they found out it was true, so those guys got hung, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Then three, chapter 3 goes right into the king promoted Haman. So if the king knew that Mordecai was Esther, the queen's cousin, you just wonder if it would have been a turn of event. What, this, what we can pull from this is we're going to make mistakes. We're not going to do things perfect. We're going to intentionally sin. We're going to... Uh, you know, even sin unintentionally. David even says, Lord, keep me from intentionally sinning and forgive my unknown sins. We sin and we don't even know it. So God, in his graciousness and his mastery of everything, uses even our mistakes, even our, you know, what we think we're doing in the best effort or whatever. So it plays out this way. God chose to unfold these events through this scenario of the closet queen um, and Haman getting promoted and not Mordecai back then. But now we see, fast forward to this day, Mordecai has been promoted to that place. And he does stuff like this just to, like we have mentioned, to, to, it's so apparent that he is the one at work, that it's his working behind the scenes that these things are happening. 
But that's not an excuse for us to be lazy and just say, well, God will cover for me, or God's forgiven me so I can do whatever I need to do because I know I'm forgiven or whatever. You know, Paul talks about that, you know, sinning on purpose. We can't work like that. We need to hold to Matthew 6, 3, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to us. We will be taken care of. So there they are, and they're new. They've got their new digs. Mordecai has now been promoted to second-in-command, the prime minister, and that, but there's still a problem out there. There's still a problem. The edict that Haman had put into process was still going to happen. The day was fast approaching when the Jews were going to be attacked and killed by their enemy. Um, and so Esther goes to the king, and she throws herself at his feet, not on his feet because she had, but throws at the, where he's at with a foot, throws herself down and she's begging and pleading and weeping and crying. She's in great turmoil. You would think maybe she'd be happy she just got this new house and all this stuff and Mordecai's all this stuff, but that's not what's heavy on her heart. What's heavy on her heart are her people. She's not even thinking of herself. She's totally in this to save the people. And so the king has her come forward um, She's pleading against this evil plan of Haman the Agagite, right? That's the enemy of the, against the Jews. The king holds out the scepter, and she comes to him. And it's interesting how she pleads with him this time. Four times she says to him, If it please the king, and if I have found favor with you... So she's talking about two things. She wants the king to look at two things. The, the, the issue that she's going to bring before him, and also herself. If it please the king with this issue, and if I please you... She's tying herself personally to the event. If I have found favor in your sight. And then she says it a second time. If, if this, this seems right before you, and if I am pleasing in your eyes... She's really laying it on. If you love me, you'll do this for me, basically, is what she's saying here. Pleading with him. Um, Please, let this thing be revoked. Um, Because of Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadathi, destroying the Jews in all the provinces. She says, how can I even bear to see the calamity that this is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred. So her heart is just distressed by this. And the king, he, I, you know, the king's not very strong, but I think in this instance it's in our favor because he can't make decisions by himself. He just says, okay, whatever you want to do, you and Mordecai, whatever you want to do, go ahead and do it. Go ahead and write it. Go ahead. You know, you have my pen. Go ahead. Or my ring, and I'll stamp it on there and everything. You guys can decide. It's okay. He didn't really rule. He just said, okay, you decide, or you decide, or what should I do here? What should I do here? You know, she was more like a figurehead. Um, But that's okay. God is working him, isn't he? He's almost like a puppet. So they decide then. He says, you can do whatever you want to, um, you and and Mordecai. you may write it down regarding the Jews in my name, and I'll seal it for you with my ring. And so they get the scribes together. And I was thinking about what that might be like, because there's like 127 provinces and different languages and stuff like that, or different 
I don't know, whatever's going on here in their own dialect, their own language, all throughout the area. So they have a room full of a, of a scribe from, that knows each of these languages, is bilingual, and, and they go out there and they're going to dictate now what they're going to write. And they're all sitting there writing in great penmanship what they're saying there. What a way. Cece came up from downstairs and she said, Janie, I need to Xerox this one thing, but... Um, I, I, the machine's not plugged in. You didn't have the copy machine plugged in. You know? And so Stephanie and Jane said, hey, no problem. They plug it in. They ran it off a copy you know, so quick. But back then, they were handwriting this stuff, several scribes, and then, and, and then several of them going to the same area and dispersing. So they're going. They're, the Pony Express gets going on swift horses, and they, and they, and they go out. Um, and part of what is written down in verse 11 saying that the king allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate those people that were going to attack them, and to let them have the plunder, okay? So on that day, there's this one day in history here that they can do this when the other edict for Haman's people, that the first edict that said that you go and just annihilate all the Jews and take their plunder. The second edict is saying the Jews have the right to be able to gather together and fight these people off and kill them and annihilate and take them. I mean, this is setting it up for a huge battle here. And they go off on the speedy horses, their swift horses, and they take off. So, Mordecai, in verse 15, went out from the presence of the king in royal robes, blue and white, with a great golden crown on his head, and robe of fine linen and purple, and he goes out into the city. Okay, and the people were shouting and rejoicing for him um, that Mordecai um, was the new prime minister and he was making it known throughout the pro- word was spreading that this is Mordecai, Haman's dead and, and the king is now favoring Mordecai and the word is going out through all the area and this is the new edict and Haman, uh, Mordecai was... His Jewishness was not hidden. This is a war. A war between Haman the Agagite and the war between Mordecai the Jew. The people, remember in Exodus, where um, the Malachites would not let the people, they were giving God's people a bad time, and God tells them, I'm going to wipe you off the memory of heaven. And then later down the line, we find out that Saul was supposed to wipe him out, and he didn't do that. So it's a, it's a, we look at that in today's world, and we see genocide, and we think, you know what, is this God's, you know, why, I can't, God's word, it's just, they're going to kill the children, they're going to kill the children, they're going to kill the women, you know. We have to take a step back from it and realize There's a difference between genocide and holy war. Haman was doing genocide, wanting to wipe them all out, just wipe off the Jews, okay? Hitler was genocide, okay? These wars that God did with Joshua, 
going in and you know, killing all the people, annihilating all of them, what was supposed to happen with uh, the Amalekites. That is a holy war. God will use his people to, and sometimes he uses other, other uh, ethnic groups too, to destroy the enemy of God, um, like he would use the Sodom and Gomorrah, the whole fiery sulfur thing that happened, like he used the flood, okay? Those are, God is destroying his people, the, not his people, the people that, his creation, that were in opposition to him. He has a right to do it. He's the only one that has a right to do it. I remember when my kids were little and my son was really into Legos and he would build a Lego set and it'd be Lego and he built it and everything and be sitting out there. And no one was allowed to pull that apart except him. His sisters couldn't mess with it. Because he, right? <laughs> they just going, yes. <laughs> because he created it. He had the right to take it apart. I have a piece right now at home, a little honey thing that, no, we're not going to touch it, Can It's sitting there until he comes back and takes it apart. God created. He has the right to do these things, okay? We think it's horrible, but it's an opposition to God. And if it's not dealt with, we see what happened here. If Saul didn't do what he was supposed to do. If Saul had done what he was supposed to do, they wouldn't be in this position now here with Esther in this kingdom, okay? So there's a difference between holy war and genocide. We don't live in that era today. We live in the era this side of the cross, of the outpouring of grace. Our battle is not with flesh and blood. Our battle is with the arguments that set themselves up against the word of God. Our battle is used with truth. Our battle is used with um, being a love sometimes. I mean, we win people over by, gosh, you, you're just so different um, how come you're not upset by that? You know, who we are, our peace and everything. Those are the instruments of warfare that you, we use now. But there was going to come a time when holy war is going to come again. When he comes down on that white horse in his uh, blood-stained robe, then there's going to be another holy war. So I just wanted to clear that up because sometimes we have a hard time with killing the, the babies, you know. I mean, it's hard, we, you know. But this is, this is the distinction between the two. Um, so 15, Mordecai has been promoted, and he's going out there, and we see a huge change in what the people are, are saying. They shouted and rejoiced. And the Jews, in verse 16, had light and gladness and joy and honor. Look at four things. Light and gladness and joy and honor. Huge change from chapter 4, verse 3, where they were mourning and fasting and weeping and wailing. Do you see the flip? Flip of the tables, the reversal happening in just a very short period of time. So, I love this part. Verse 17 of chapter 8. And in every providence and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, the second edict, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Did you guys pick that up? There were a lot of people converted to Judaism. Whether they were afraid, I mean, what's, what did they have to pick from? The first edict was Haman. Where was he? 75-foot pole, right? They knew about that. 
All right? So that's what happened to him. Or the second edict, which is Mordecai, who now the king is backing and supporting. Um, it's, you know, you'd have to be a real fool to still side with be an enemy of the Jew. But it flushed out the people who really hated the Jews. Um, so <laughs> another reversal. Instead of annihilating the Jews, there were more Jews. Did you see that? There were more Jews happening. Anyways, I'm sure some of them were true converts to Judaism or whatever, but some of them just, anyways, they befriended God's people because we know those who um, bless you, God will bless, and those who curse you, God will curse. So anyways, and many of them were coming around them. All right, so we get into chapter 9, and we're preparing for the day of battle. It's just around the corner this day, this one particular day. This day, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them. Um, This book, especially last week, it was very... It was very funny. We had a good belly laugh on all of it with all the things. And there's still things that are being turned around, not as hilarious as that. But this book is, is, is designed to make us laugh. It's designed to make us realize that God is sovereign and is going to take care of us. And in Psalm 37:13, it says, God, the, but the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. He knows, God knows the end of this, and, and they can do whatever they want to do and, and plan all this stuff and plot and everything, but God just is snickering at him because he knows the outcome. So I know in tragedies we don't like to laugh. That really seems insensitive. But there's a grief and a mourning that happens and a weeping, but then in the in the background of all of it we don't stay there because we come out of it and say you know God's going to even make this good he's even going to make this good and so we have that hope lying past our tragedy Christ who was faced with the cross in Hebrews he looked past the cross to what it was beyond when he would be at the right hand of the father he looked through it and that's what helped him move through the 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 pain of the cross so we can this is a humorous book and it's and it's fact it's not just fiction here but this word i pause to insert that because i want to zero in on that word mastery um in verse five and no one could stand oh mastery i'm sorry in verse like three the reverse occurred the jews gained mastery verse one over those who hated them gained mastery over. I think King James said power over them. And um, if we pull out verse 4 in that chapter 9 to add to this, verse 4 says, For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the providences. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. How did he grow more and more powerful? Did he go to the gym and work out? How did he grow more and more powerful? Word of mouth. Truth. This is so pertinent today, where truth is censored, 
where people control what we're going to hear and they have a narrative out there, a propaganda out there that they're going to filter into that. And so the masses only hear one side of the story. If these people in all these provinces did not know that Mordecai had saved the king's life, did not know that Mordecai had was a Jew, that Mordecai was now... Um, backed by the king with all his resources, what's going on, and all his officials and everything, they were all siding with the Jews. If they weren't informed with accurate stuff, they can't make a good decision on things. So through the truth that was coming out, through the truth that comes out to us, we learn to master our situations. You understand? Satan wants us stupid, Satan wants to dictate to us what, how we think. You'll own nothing and be happy. That doesn't matter, you know? Take down the Ten Commandments, you know? Don't say Jesus. Don't pray in, that, you know, in Congress. Don't do, don't do that. Don't wear that crap, cross. It's offensive to me. Chipping away at these things. We've got to take a stand. You know why? Because he's on our side. Okay? Are you following me with this? So when I read that, they just jumped out at me. The mastery. He who owns the language owns the people. He who defines... Look at history. They're redefining terms. I was little when the word gay meant jovial. I was around when rainbow was something cool. So... Rewriting history, rewriting terminology like vaccine, and I won't get too far in anything. We've got to get in and truly cling on to God and the truth and know what his word says. We get our, our brains into this. God's spirit will teach us the truth. He'll open our eyes up to see what's going on out there. Okay? We are... We are we're God's people. We should be mastery over all of this stuff. So that was, that's what was going on. That's how he gained power. That's how all these people got out there and they started siding with the Jews and they collected all their, you know, their weapons of warfare because the king's officials were even, even in support of them. Okay? All the officials were with them and they, and they got together. So enough of that. You can see I'm impassioned about this right now. <laughs> So, the truth was spreading. Mordecai saved the king. Mordecai was the queen's cousin. Mordecai was the new prime minister. Haman was dead. Hey, this, no, rocket scientist, I'm going to side with Mordecai here, all right? All right, so in, six, in verses 6 to 10, we have the outcome of the battle. And it goes down, and it says that um, 500 men were killed, and it lists the 10 sons of Haman if you want to know what their names are, you can read them. I wasn't going to, there was big, long names there. But anyways, there's ten of them there, and all ten of them, enemies of the Jews, were killed. But they laid no hand on the plunder. They could have. The edict said they could have, but they didn't take the plunder. Think back now. Why did that happen? Saul wasn't supposed to take the plunder, was he? Holy war. You don't take the plunder. You destroy it. They didn't take the plunder here. Okay. Now, 
that very day, many, many casualties and stuff, the Jews and those who supported the Jews were, were winning the battle. The enemy of the Jews were, were being destroyed and annihilated. Um, but Esther goes to the king. He says, what is it, Esther? What do you need? Esther says, if it please the king, in verse 13 of chapter 9, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according um, to this day's edict. In other words, let's have one more day extension of this. Okay? And, and take these ten sons and stake them up out there. That seems gruesome, but this was a holy war. Okay? And so, he loves Esther. Hey, this is cool, whatever. We'll, we'll go ahead and do this, you know? And he allows that to happen. Why did Esther... She, up to this point, she just seems like a beautiful, proper, obedient. This sounds like she's like bloodthirsty cutthroat, right? She, once she decided that she was going to identify or let it be allowed who she really was and start living like a Jew and, and identifying with as one of God's people, chosen people in the nation, you know, God was using her and everything. And she wanted to complete the job that Saul didn't do. That's what this was about. We need to complete the job that Saul failed to do. Um, And so the king says, okay, and so they go ahead and do that. Um, And there was great feasting. They rested. In verse 18, it says that they rested, and they had a day of feasting and gladness, a day of gladness and feasting, again, a holiday, and a day on which they sent gifts of food to one another. And verse 20 to the end of this chapter 9 um, talks about the Feast of Purim being established. Um, and they obliged to do it because the Jews, in verse 22, I'm going to just pull that one out. This is the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, and they were going to make a recognition, be obligated to make a recognition of what happened. And then 23 to the end gives a summary of what just happened. Um, They were going to call it Pur, which means lot. And the Jews firmly obliged to what was going to happen then, okay? And they were going to keep this commandment. These days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan and province and city that these days of Purim shall never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. And the Queen Elizabeth wrote it down, confirming it, that they were going to observe this, obligated, obligated, all through there, all, this whole pair, several verses in there, nailing it down. It's an obligation, and they confirmed it, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. Go overboard saying, you gotta, you got to keep this practice. you got to observe these holidays. Why was that so important? Because it was a day in history where God demonstrated his sovereign power and providence of taking care of his people. It looked like it was going to be the end for these people. 
There was no hope for them. And then just the situations that turned around, God flipped the tables, turning sorrow into gladness and mourning into a holiday, a great celebration. And he did it like within one day, two days he did this, to remember the great works of God. It's almost like the day the world turned upside down. Remember last year in Acts 17, 6, they were talking about Paul and the, people, the new Christians at the time and the Jews at the time were against Christianity saying, these men are turning the world upside down. Turning the world upside down. Flipping it around. Living our lives as God's people and allowing him to work through us. Caring for us. Loving us. Letting us go through suffering so he can also comfort us through the suffering. So people can say, how can you do that when all this is going on? And you can just look with joy and just point it to the Savior because Jesus is taking care of me. The people who don't know God, they can't deal with life. Well, let me rephrase that. People who don't know God deal with, God, deal with life in very poor ways. But people who are the children of God... We are uh, a breath of fresh air, a way, a, a uh, role model on how to get through these, these struggles. We're on the winning side. We're on the winning side. Therefore, we shouldn't act like we're losing. <laughs> Woe is me. <laughs> What's going to happen? <laughs> right? Lost my job or whatever. Or got a bad diet. You know, we are on the winning side. Our enemies are still all around us, right? Whether it's an enemy that um, is attacking us verbally or financially or hates whatever, or we got a, a disease or there's, you know, finance, whatever's happening, you know. We live in a hostile territory. But when the King of Kings is on our side, we should have no fear, okay? Romans 8:31. If God is for us, who can be against us, right? That's a good verse to remember, too. Okay, let's wrap it up here. Um, oh, by the way, when I was late last week, and I was, like, praying that the children's teachers wouldn't be mad at me, I get down there, and they said, oh, we were running late, too. Isn't God good with stuff like that? <laughs> so anyways, um, there's a little chapter 10, which has basically got three verses in it. It's like an epilogue or a little postscript. Why is this tagged on here? All right. Great celebration in um, Persia. Uh, you know, the Jews are, it's, they're just, uh, you know, almost a promised land there in Persia. Things are going well. Everything's good. And we find out in chapter 10 that King Aceres has imposed taxes. Okay, he took the taxes away when he got Queen, uh, I was going to say Queen Elizabeth, when he got Queen Esther, right? He said, oh, we're going to take away no, no more taxes. And now, after this great, wonderful defeat of the enemy, he's going to impose taxes now. Yeah? It goes on to talk about, you know, Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank, and they were, you know, he looked after the welfare of the people, and he spoke peace. Here's some thoughts on that. It's another reversal. No taxes to taxes, right? God's people had rest from their enemies, but it's only temporarily. 
This is a picture of what's to come. It's a foreshadowing of what's to come. And we have many of those in Scripture, foreshadowings of, of what is to come. So it's a story in history that is letting us hang on to the hope that the day is going to come when we will have eternal rest from our enemies and serve the one true God. Greater, a greater reversal is going to come. Things are going to get worse. We know things are going to get worse. How far we stay into that, I'm not going to get into that. But it's not going to be, right now, Christians around the world, it's not good for many Christians around the world. But the day is going to come when all that's going to flip around and we will have a forever peace, a forever rest from our enemies. Okay? The evil empire is all around. Revelation 11:15 says this, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, and we will receive our final rest from the enemy. Well, just a couple observations here from the little book of Esther. Three of them. Oh, four of them. I did a typo. First of all, the hand of God moves supernaturally natural way. Does that make sense? In a supernaturally natural way. Spurgeon says this about the book of Esther. It's a book of wonders without miracles, if you think about it. It's a book of wonders, but there's no miracles in here. So his hand moves supernaturally, naturally through, through history. The second thing is God's sovereign plan is unshakable. God's will is accomplished. His will is accomplished, and yet men are perfectly free agents. All right? Now, why don't we, we don't have to do anything because God's plan is going to come out. No, that's not how it works. We, we are responsible for our, what we do. People do their will, and we bear the responsibility, yet God works out his eternal plan for all ages through it. There's no interference. There's no coercion on God's part. Haman did what pleased him. King Asherah did what pleased him. Mordecai and Esther also did what they believed was best. There was nothing, no interference from God in those ways. These people had free will, and yet God's eternal plan played out. God rules even in the counsels of the the ungodly. We see... uh, Temples of Satan popping up all over the place and abortion clinics with ritual rights to, you know, have an abortion and all this stuff. God rules even in there. They're on a leash. When he's talking to Job, do this but only go so far, right? God rules. The third thing is God is sovereign. God's sovereignty will include his, his provincial care of his people. He works through our... Faithful efforts. Jeremiah 29:11. This is from a little while back. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. There is no doomsday coming for us. And the final one is this. Trials and sufferings in this world are used by God for his glory. 
The Romans 8.28 is all through this. And we know that, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I'm going to close with this, but let me read you um, this little saying out of Streams in the Desert from February 4th. One of the first rules of aerodynamics is that flying into the wind quickly increases altitude. The wings of the airplane create more lift by flying against the wind. How was this lesson learned? It was learned from watching birds fly. If a bird is simply flying around for pleasure, it flies with the wind. But if it senses danger, it turns into the wind to gain altitude and flies up toward the sun. The sufferings of life are God's winds, just winds. Sometimes they blow against us and are very strong. They are his hurricanes taking our lives to higher levels toward his heavens. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Stronger the winds that are coming after us, the more we are lifted up to the heavens.